Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see your smiling, happy faces on this beautiful Epiphany uh, Sunday. Tomorrow is the day of Epiphany, which we're going to learn about in a moment. But first, I wanted to introduce my father, uh, Robin Adams, so you can give him. So uh, there was about 30 seconds. <laughs> there was about 30 seconds in the 10th grade when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my whole life that I thought, maybe I'll be a pastor like my dad. And I went, nah. <laughs> That's what Pentecostals do, you know, like they, they go in succession and you take over your father's church and all that. Not surely not us. And then the Lord had obviously very different ideas and here I am. So you can blame him uh, for the way that I am today, as all of us can blame all of our parents for the way that we are today. Um, but I'm really excited. Uh, my folks are here for the next month visiting from France, um, where they are uh, stationed at a little church in Brittany, France, which is kind of the western part of France, um, where they're ministering to English speakers in the area, um, which is so uh, incredible just to see their growth over the past couple of years and, and stepping into that new adventure. And, and they've shared a little bit about that in the past year. So um, I'm going to pray. And uh, we're going to just see what word the Lord has for us today on this beautiful Epiphany Sunday. Heavenly Father, um, again, we just pause in awe and reverence that you're here and that you're with us and that you're for us, you're not against us. And Lord, as we wrap up this season of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, um, centered around that idea of you, of you coming into our midst, as the scripture says, the way that Eugene Peterson translates it, that you, you pitched your tent among us, uh, that you chose to be here with us, that you don't see anything in us um, that makes, makes us, uh, you know, reprehensible to you. You don't consider yourself so holy and so above the human thing that you can't be with us, but that your heart of compassion draws you into the very midst of us. All of our mess, all of our mistakes, but all of our beautiful, uh, most godlike qualities that you've woven into our DNA. And so, God, as we continue on in that journey of, of learning what it means to be uh, in the presence of Emmanuel, God, with us, I pray that you would open each of our ears and to hear you speak to us today, whatever we need to hear you say. You'd open our eyes, that we can see you not only through the story of the Magi, but through our own story as we are following you from step to step, and that you'd open our hearts to receive your truth. So bless us, Lord, as we bless you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, thank you, Ryan. Have you ever received a present, perhaps at Christmas, and you don't fully understand what it is, or perhaps how to put it together, or what that present can do for you? I remember a few years ago, we were in Manchester, England, visiting a, a seminary friend of mine, and uh, we were working out sleeping arrangements, we're looking at a sofa. He said it's just an ordinary sofa. But uh, Donna went around the back and found a, a lever and, and flipped the lever and it folded out into a bed. And our friend said, I've had that couch 10 years. I never knew <laughs> that it was a sleeper bed. Well, that's an aha moment. That's an epiphany moment. And that's what the season of epiphany is. It's uh, we've received... Jesus, the baby in, in Bethlehem, but who is he? 
And what is he going to do? And how is he going to do it? And how does that relate to me? And how does that affect me? So there's a lot of discovery and unpacking to do with this Jesus whom we have received. And that's the basis of the word epiphany, to discover. It's also got a lot to do with light. And that was a theme of a lot of our prayers, the poem and of of the songs that we sang, but light is about revealing uh, darkness. Uh, so we, there's something out there in the dark and we're going to put light on it to try to understand it and to believe it. So this story that we're focusing on from Matthew chapter 2, uh, the first 12 verses, is about the Magi who come uh, to, and we've got a beautiful <laughs> painting of that. There's so many stained glass windows and artist, artistic impressions and Christmas card renderings of, of the Magi out there. But uh, So this is just one we picked up to, to try to help us. But we want to think about who are the Magi? And what does the scripture tell us? Only this, this story is only in Matthew's gospel. It's not in the other four gospels. Um, so we just have this one account. And what it tells us is that, first of all, they were not kings. It never says that they were kings. It describes them as magi, which is a word from Persia, which means something like magician or sage or wise person. So it's okay to call them wise men from the east, but we can't really call them kings. They don't act like kings. They don't pretend to be kings. Secondly, we don't even know that there were three of them. It just says magi in the plural, and uh, there might have been ten. There might have been six. We assume it might have been three because they presented later three gifts, but we don't know. They probably came with attendants and servants um, uh, looking at making a journey like that. Uh, they were obviously fairly well resourced and well off, so I'm sure they didn't travel alone. So we can imagine quite a few people arrived. And when they come to visit Mary and, and Joseph and find the baby eventually, we're told in Greek that it's a house that they come to. And of course, we're used to thinking of Jesus born in a stable, which I believe he was. But this may have been some time after the birth. Eight days after the birth, Jesus is circumcised and there are prophetic words over him in the temple. And they probably stayed on in Bethlehem for some time. And then the Magi arrive. And sometime after that, they go off to Egypt. Where did the Magi come from? Well, they came from the east. We don't know how far east. But it seems very likely that they came from what we would now call Iran and Iraq, which was Babylon and Persia. And these great empires at different points in history had conquered Israel and had taken the intelligentsia of Israel and all the learning of Israel into their empire. You think of books like Daniel. And th that information had been respected in those eastern nations. There was still a large Jewish minority of people in those nations. And their religion and their ideas 
would have been understood at least by the intelligentsia of those countries. Even though they were pagan nations that didn't honor the God of, God of Israel, but they would have understood some things about this very unique monotheistic religion uh, with all its habits and all its ways of worshiping and all its rules. They would have understood that minority in their country. And so the Magi uh, are somehow guided by God to understand that God is doing something new and unique, that God is answering the Hebrew scriptures by providing a king, a messiah, a savior, who is going to be born in, somewhere in Israel. They don't have complete information, but they have enough information that makes them want to travel there and to find this person and to give homage to this person and discover more about what it all means and, and how to understand it. So are they magicians or are they astronomers or astrologers? How do we really classify uh, the Magi? I was just thinking about the Magic Kingdom and the word magic comes from Magi, this ancient Persian word. And some of you I know work in the Magic Kingdom and, and the other um, similar venues. And there's a lot of science behind the magic, <laughs> right? So, you know, they, they just didn't distinguish very well between science and magic. But that doesn't matter. The point is that God reached out to them and touched them and gave them a desire to know him and to find him. And they were willing to put all their resources in the line and to make a journey which would have lasted at least a month, maybe two or three months, and to get eventually to Jerusalem and to try to search for one baby among tens of thousands of babies and children that must have been around there. So they're on a journey. And of course they arrive uh, in that area and a good thing to do is to pay your respects to the local authorities. And so they come to King Herod. And Herod, of course, he's under the Roman authority, but he has a great deal of authority in Palestine. And he himself is the king. And one of the things we know from Herod from history is that he is extremely jealous of his kingship. And there are all kinds of pretenders to the throne, all kinds of revolutionaries that come forward. And he is ruthless in slaughtering all of them. He, he slaughters members of his family. He slaughters members of his um, generalship. Uh, he, he slaughters rich people and visitors. Uh, he really has one solution to any kind of rivalry, and that is to get rid of those people. There's a story about Herod that when he died, he put it in his will that 2,000 of the leading citizens of the country were to be killed on his death so that there would be tears in the country. Because he knew that nobody was really going to cry for him passing away, but there's going to be tears because there's going to be a lot of death. And so when these visitors from the east appear and say, we are following a star, we've been guided here, we know that God is doing something, and someone is to be born who is the king of the Jews, his antenna goes up. And he says, I can't have a rival king, even if it's only a baby. 
And even if it's only a rumor from some strange visitors from far away who really don't have the full information of what's happening, I can't have this. That's the only thing he really cared about was his own image, his own identity, his own security, and he is just crazy about this. And um, he immediately says to them, well, that's a wonderful thing. Um, let me ask my religious experts if there's something that they can help us in this search. So, of course, he calls up the scribes and Pharisees, and they know the Old Testament scriptures, and many of them point to Bethlehem, uh, just a few miles from Jerusalem as the village where the Messiah is to be born. David was born in Bethlehem, uh, and this child is to be a son of David. The Messiah is going to come from there. So they say, well, according to the scriptures, it's got to be in Bethlehem. And so Herod says, well, go and search for the child. And when you find the exact location, let me know, and I too will come and worship him. Of course, we know that wasn't the case. And so the wise men from the east, they head on towards Bethlehem. And then the star appears again, apparently. We don't know if it was a moving star, if it was just a bright star. But for them, it had meaning, and it seemed to guide them to the exact place. And they find Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus. How is it that they understand that Jesus really is God incarnate, that this is the baby of all babies, uh, this is the child that God means them to find. Perhaps they talk to Mary and Joseph and they learn about the, um, the miraculous birth and they, they learn about the dreams that uh, Joseph has had and the visions that Mary has had. And, and they learn about the shepherds having come in and the angels having arrived. And they, they get the whole story. They may have spent some time. We're not just to think that they came for a 10-minute visit and said, okay, let's just go back. No, they may have spent some time learning this, these stories and these things. And um, they come and they begin to worship Jesus. Now, there's something interesting about that. Because we're told that Jesus is to be born the king of the Jews. It's not that he's going to be the king of the Jews, but from the moment of his birth, he is the rightful king of the Jews. But the first people who come to worship him, we're told, apart from the shepherds, are these pagans from the east, Gentiles, who have come also to worship him. So what Matthew is saying in his gospel is that, yes, Jesus is for the Jews, maybe the Jews first, but also for the Greek, as Paul would say, also for the Gentiles. And here's proof, because Gentiles are the first people to show up and to worship him in body and in voice and in gifts and in praise. And they take the knowledge of him back uh, with them to their home place. This idea of Gentiles coming miraculously to understand Jesus and to worship him reminds me of a story from a church that we had up in Michigan. And there were several uh, people from different countries there. And there was one young lad who was, his mother was from Thailand, his people were from Thailand, but he was raised in the States very well-educated, smart young man. And um, in his late teens, he came to faith in Christ. Now, he had no instructions 
from home but never attended church. But he started to come to some activities at our church. And we sat down with him and we discipled him. We taught him the Gospels. And he responded. He was, he was baptized. He was uh, confirmed. And his mother, uh, there was a very close bond between mother and son. And uh, she would come to everything that he came to. All the youth activities, all the sports, all the trips, you know, all the Bible studies. And um, she talked and talked and asked so many questions. But we all thought that she was illiterate because she couldn't read anything in English. She had to translate everything for her. And uh, she worked through all of the discipleship material with him, but he had to read everything and explain everything. So there were sort of like two levels of explanation going on. We were explaining to him, and he was then trying to explain to her. And after many months, we discovered that this lady who had lived in America for over 20 years actually knew how to read Thai, but didn't have anything in the Thai language that she could read. So she just didn't read anything. And uh, we were able to get her a Bible in Thai, and she joined a Bible study, and they would show her, okay, this is the page we're reading, this is the story. She'd read it in Thai, and she would join in the conversation. So she wanted to believe in Jesus the same way as her son had believed in Jesus. But she had one problem, and that was she also believed in the Buddha. And in her home, she had a little shelf, she had a little model of the, uh, you know, um, a little craft item of the Buddha, and she had little food offerings and candles in front of the Buddha, and every day she would pray to the Buddha. And what she wanted to do was to pray to the Buddha at home and pray to Jesus at church. When we go to church with my son, we'll pray to Jesus. When we come home, uh, and every day I'll pray to the Buddha. And we said, no, you know, you can't do that. Jesus is the only one who can save you. There are many wonderful things about Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and other faiths, but they don't have a savior who can really save you. And if you make Jesus your Lord, he can be the only one who is Lord of your life. You can't divide your loyalties among other gods or ideologies. You have to be totally out and out for Jesus. But she didn't really understand this coming from her background. And so she said, well, we'll see how it goes. So when she'd come to church, she'd pray to Jesus. And when she was at home, she would pull out the Buddha and, and make sacrifices and pray to the Buddha. But eventually, um, God spoke to her in a dream. It wasn't just a dream. It was a vision that she had of Jesus. And she said that Jesus appeared to her. They sat down and they had a long conversation about this. And that Jesus told her it was okay to believe in him only. In fact, it was the right thing to do. And it, you should put the, um, the Buddha away. And so she did. She put it away completely. And uh, we gave her a crucifix with Jesus on it because she was a very visual person. And she said, I now believe in Jesus 100%. He's my only Lord, my only King, my only Savior. And so, you know, God does that. He's drawing people into the kingship of Christ, the Lordship of Jesus, even from the most remote and ridiculous and unlikely backgrounds. 
Still people are coming from north, south, east, and west to Jesus. Now there were some people in this story who should have been there worshiping the Lord. And those were the scribes and, and Pharisees who had identified the correct scriptures and told the Magi where to look. They should have responded. They were close to the truth. They understood it. They had an intellectual knowledge of what it was all about. They had, a, if you like to say, a church background. But they didn't have it in their heart. They weren't passionate to find the truth. And so the truth didn't come towards them. So the Magi come and they present these gifts. And we all know what the gifts are, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's where we get the idea there might have been three of them. Though again, we don't know that for sure. These are very weird gifts to give a family that have just had a baby. A number of you have had children here, right? Has anybody showed up with a gold bar <laughs> at the hospital? Or, you know, a bucket of incense, a packet of incense for you to have? Or embalming ointment? Is that, has that a, appeared, maybe? It's not really on, on your to-go list uh, for, for new births. So why, why did they do this? Well, these were actually the kinds of gifts that you might present to a king. First of all, gold is definitely something you want to give to a king. And in the Old Testament, it talks about people coming to Solomon and presenting him gold, even though the man has more gold than Fort Knox. But uh, they give him gold because that's what you give to a king. And then frankincense is something that a priest would use. And if you understand the job of a priest, it's to stand between God and the people and to bring the word of God to the people and to bring the needs and concerns of the people to God. And in the Old Testament, a priest would do that through making sacrifices and through leading prayers, and they would light incense and the smoke would go up. And the idea was that as the smoke ascends, as the smell ascends and attracts God's attention, then uh, our prayers go along with that, are conducted with that into the presence of God. And so it's a tool uh, of the priest. And then myrrh is a kind of embalming ointment. It may just have been the same ointment that was used uh, to anoint the feet of Jesus, but we're not sure about that. But it was the kind of thing that you would save for the death and for the anointing of a body. Jews, of course, buried very quickly, so you had to put the ointment on immediately. What, again, what a weird gift to give to a family that have just had a baby. But I believe that God led them to these gifts. Um, that they were to understand that this child that you've come to worship is a king. He's to be born king of the Jews, but he's also going to be your king, your Gentiles. But you have come to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus. Secondly, he is your priest. He is the one who stands between you and God. You don't have the right to stand in the presence of God because he's a holy God and you're an unholy, undeserving person. You need an intermediary. You need an advocate. And that advocate is going to be Jesus, who is your priest. In Hebrews, it talks about Jesus as the great high priest 
the one who uh, we can go to to find access uh, to the Father. But he's also the one who's going to be the sacrifice. He's the priest and he's the sacrifice because he's the only one who was good enough to pay the price, the penalty for your sins and for my sins. We should have those three words up. Uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold for the king, frankincense for the priest, myrrh is the sacrifice. How can Jesus be all of these three things to you and to I? It's uh, fun to worship him as our king, but do we really understand that we need him to be our priest and that we definitely need him to be our sacrifice? This is the breadth of the Jesus whom we worship. And the problem with Christmas is that the world can easily accept the potential of a baby, the innocence of a child, and the joy of the holy family, and the new start, and all the rest of it. But that doesn't get to the truth of what Jesus was all about. That's a very superficial understanding of who Jesus really is. The gifts of the Magi bring it home that he is to be our king, our lord, that he is our intermediary, our priest, and that he is also the sacrifice of the one who died for our sins. If we can go to our last slide. And this is a quote from uh, William Temple earlier in the century about worship. And I think the Magi are the first who come to worship the shepherds' worship, and the Magi come to worship the king. But what is worship? It is to give God his worth, to give Christ his worth. And I just love this definition because it, it takes all of the aspects of being human, and it tells us what we're to do with them as we come into the presence of God uh, to worship. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. When we stand naked before a holy God, we are embarrassed, we are ashamed, and our conscience is enlivened. And we're reminded that we've got to be changed, we've got to be transformed, we've got to be healed uh, if we are to really be in the presence of this God. To feed the mind with the truth about God. We tell ourselves so many lies. We're told so many lies by people around us, by the media around us. We need to hear the truth, and the truth comes from the presence of God in our lives. To purge our imagination by the beauty of God. I think that's an excellent one for City Beautiful Church to think about, because you're all so artistic. And uh, most of the churches I've worshipped in are not all that artistic. But you're full of very artistic people who understand things visually and audibly. Um, and we can have our imaginations purged by the beauty of God, to meditate on how beautiful God is, to, to put it into song, into art, into poetry, into color, and to allow our imagination to be transformed by that. There's so many things out there in the world around us that want to pervert our appreciation of beauty, to devalue it. And when we have a true vision of God, it elevates our understanding of beauty. And then to open our hearts to the love of God. 
And it is the love of God that really heals and transforms us. And yes, we love, but in a very poor and broken and haphazard and self-centered kind of way. And it's really the love of God that heals us and that allows us to minister and love people, others, effectively. To open our hearts to the love of God. And then finally, to devote our will to the purpose of God. What would be the point of coming before God and having the most marvelous, transforming worship experience unless we went out and did something about it by the way that we live our life? by the relationships that we have, the priorities that we set, the friendships that we develop, the acts of service that we undergo, the sacrifices that we make in order to be on God's team. He did everything for us. Why would we not want to do something for him? So to devote the will to the purpose of God. Can you join with me as we uh, just recite that together? That definition of worship, sorry. If you can go back to that. Thank you. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind by the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. We don't just worship God incarnate, the baby in Bethlehem, but we worship Jesus who is King, great high priest, and our sacrifice. Father in heaven, thank you for the faith of the wise men who acted on very little information, but risked everything to come and be there at that moment, and who gave everything they have and accepted him as not just God incarnate, but as King, priest, and sacrifice. May we have that same kind of faith that these Magi display to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. And now we're going to um, bless the bread and wine, and there'll be an invitation for you to come forward. And in the liturgical prayer that I'm going to read, there are really two parts. And they're called the anamnesis and the epiclesis, come from Greek. Anamnesis is to bring to mind. So we tell the story, not just of Jesus breaking the bread and wine in the upper room, but how that really represents everything that God is doing through history and through the cross to bring salvation to us. And secondly, the epiclesis, which is a calling down of the Holy Spirit on the bread and wine and upon us, more importantly. And you had an epiclesis at the beginning of the service when you were singing, Come Holy Spirit. But it's more of that, that the Holy Spirit is to come and to be present in our lives and to meet us. Because this isn't just remembering something from the past, but it's bringing that past into our presence so powerfully that it's like we're there and we are meeting Jesus afresh again. So these two things come out in our prayers. So uh, it's response. I'll say the first parts and you say the second parts. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. 
Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. O God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only Son to the people of the earth. Lead us who know you now by faith to your presence, where we may see your glory face to face, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We give thanks to you, O God, for the goodness and love which you have made known to us in creation, in the calling of Israel to be your people, in your word spoken through the prophets, and above all, in the word made flesh, Jesus your Son. For in these last days you have sent him to be incarnate from the Virgin Mary, to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world. In him you have delivered us from evil and made us worthy to stand before you. In him you have brought us out of error into truth, out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life. And the night before he died, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wherever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, according to his command, O Father, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, we await his coming in glory. And we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, O Lord of all, presenting to you from your creation this bread and this wine. We pray you, gracious God, send your Holy Spirit on these gifts, that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and his blood of the new covenant. Unite us to your Son in his sacrifice, that we may be acceptable through him, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, Put all things in subjection under your Christ and bring us to that heavenly country where with all your saints we may enter into that everlasting heritage of your sons and daughters. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church and the author of our salvation. By him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father now and forever. Amen. And now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Draw near with faith and receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for you, and his blood, which he shed for you. Remember that he died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.